Support for Essential Tremors comes from the Big Ears Festival, celebrating 10 years with Los Lobos, Bill Frizzell, Edgar Meyer, and John Zorn. March 30th through April 2nd in Knoxville. BigEarsFestival.org. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. I think a lot of artists and musical artists say that he's one of the most important artists to them. And I'm another one of those people that say that. Um, I feel like he, he just opened a whole world of composition and songwriting um, that I hadn't um, really gone down before. Um, and yeah, this song's definitely started that off for me. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Jasper Llewellyn and Mike O'Malley are two of eight members of Caroline, a London-based band that emerged just a few short years ago, but that has created a significant buzz in both the indie rock and experimental music communities. Employing a hushed, tension-filled dynamic to their minimalist sound, the band's live performances are where they have established a formidable reputation, as their mastery of this intimate approach is most evident in this setting. The first piece of music O'Malley chose as being formative for him was This Is How We Walk on the Moon by Arthur Russell.
Okay. Um, the first song I picked is um, This Is How We Walk on the Moon by Arthur Russell. Um, I feel like... Uh, well, I, I have a very distinct memory of when I first heard this song. I guess I've been... I, I'd been reading about Arthur Russell a lot, but for some reason I hadn't listened to him. Um, but I feel like there was this like resurgence of, or maybe like first ever truly, um, like, but like buzzy moment for Arthur Russell after he had died that I was aware of like 10 years ago. So there were loads of articles coming out about him. Maybe a record got, um, maybe one of those compilation records got released. Um, and yeah, I'd been reading about him loads, but I didn't listen for some reason, but I thought it sounded very interesting. And we had a party at our friend's house and we were cleaning up and our friend Ben put on this song, This Is How We Walk On The Moon. And I kind of just knew it was Arthur Russell because of how it sounded compared to, uh, like, um, after what I had read. And I, I said to him, uh, I said to Ben, what is this? Because it's amazing. And I kind of knew he was going to say it was Arthur Russell. And um, that that began a very deep obsession with him. And I think a lot of artists and musical artists say that he's one of the most important artists to them. And I'm another one of those people that say that. Um, I feel like he, he just opened a whole world of composition and songwriting um, that I hadn't. Um, really gone down before um and yeah this song's definitely started that off for me now where would this have have come along in your own your own creative development i mean i'm gonna guess you were playing music but did this um i mean did this come along before caroline did this sort of turn you in a new direction in terms of what you were doing at the time probably did it probably came along at just the right time um I was probably starting to become more interested in production and maybe not being so dependent on conventional song, like the conventional form of a song. Um, and probably becoming a little more interested in dance music and things like that. And there's always a vein of that through um, most of his music. Um, yeah. I can't say exactly probably what other things I was listening to at the time because I don't know there's there was probably so many different things but that I don't know it it was definitely a turning point in in like opening my eyes <laughs> to the possibilities of well it's essentially pop music but um I was probably moving away from writing pop music for the first time then but um, but then he kind of redefined um, what I thought of as as pop music in that way as well. Well, one of the things I think that that's interesting about him, and and part of it was you know uh, when and where he did most of his work, and then part of it was just sort of who he was. But and it's more common now I think than it was when he did it. But he, you know, he, I mean, obviously he did all sorts of 
things. And one of the things I think that's, that's interesting is about Caroline is that it, it um, you know, the band sort of brings all sorts of things to this, um, you know, for lack of a better term, pop group format. That is, you know, you switch instruments and, you know, songs do different things and sort of take different shapes even within the the course of one song sometimes or one piece. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, suggest that there's like a one-to-one correlation with Arthur Russell, but I do think that idea of sort of expanding, not just like I'll play guitar and I'll just play guitar mm. and sing the whole time, you know, that, that idea, um, fortunately is sort of, um, uh, less firmly rooted for a lot of musicians these days. And I think that's one of the strengths that, uh, that I see in Caroline. And, and clearly that was a big thing for Arthur Russell. He did all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I, I, I see that, um, link definitely. And, and also like pretty much all of his recorded songs that I've heard, there's a, there's always a hook pretty much always that there, there is actually a hook. If you listen enough times, then you, you, you suddenly hear this, like what, what suddenly will seem like a very obvious hook, especially it's way more shrouded in like his uh, cello and voice record world of echo um but yeah if you listen enough enough times it's in there and um i like to think that that's that's maybe the same with our band not on purpose but i mean actually if if there is a hook in there it's normally jasper who writes the hook because it's normally a um vocal thing um well not always but yeah i um I do think that's in there some somewhere as well. There's like these hidden <laughs> hooks that kind of keep you coming back. You know, I was um, going through a bunch of records here at the house the other day and thinking maybe I should get rid of this, you know, because I haven't listened to it in a long time. And one of the criteria I use for doing that is like, do I remember what any of the pieces on this sound like? You know, yeah. and sometimes like, oh, it's a cool record and it has this cool sound and it's cool vibe or whatever. But if like, if you don't remember what it sounds like or you don't remember any of the pieces, not that it has to be, you know, pop music or it has to be, uh, you know, it, it, it has to get you in some way. It has to like stick in your memory in some way. And, you know, even sort of abstract music, it has to sort of stick with you and it, hook is maybe not the word for that but that sense of sort of uh connecting with you and sticking in your brain i mean that's a quality like ideally maybe all music should have yeah i know what you mean i guess it depends what you want from music in some way but yeah often i need that not always <laughs> but i can see why that was a criteria for whether to keep a, 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 a record when decluttering you know The first piece of music Llewellyn chose as being formative for him was Nick Drake's From the Morning. Day one storm And it was beautiful Day one storm from 
Then the night she fell And the air was beautiful The night she fell I, when I was thinking about this, when Mike was talking, I thought I had a reason, there was like a, a clear link with why I would talk about this song in relation to what he was saying, but I now can't remember what that link was. But um, the song in, um, is uh, From the Morning by Nick Drake. And it's just, I've listened to that song uh, like kind of fairly regularly since I was probably 16 or so. And I think I had the, I had a very like deep obsession with, I suppose I was, yeah, similarly kind of obsessive with Nick, with Nick Drake as Mike was maybe with Arthur Russell. And I, yeah, I kind of like something about the chords. I think like those chords are still ones that we use actually in Carol. Like, I still kind of use chords like that, like his, like quite like sussy low chords played on the bottom few strings um, quite a lot in Caroline still. And I think it's really come from that. Although I don't think about Nick Drake as much as I used to. I was obsessed with him and I went to his, I went to like visit the town he grew up in. I became one of those people who was like obsessed with Nick Drake when I was probably like teenagers, mainly between I was like 18 and 20, 21 was the main period of obsession. But um, yeah, I think I just, I think I found it like very melancholic and I mean, it is very melancholic music. And I think it just, it just, and I learned how to play guitar from, from trying to learn his songs as well, which cause I wasn't, I, I never played guitar when I was a kid really. And then when I was, it was kind of from listening, it was from listening to, to him, probably primarily him. I'm not really sure who else, but primarily him that I wanted to play like finger picked guitar or like play with my fingers rather than strum. Like I never learned how to use a pick or anything because I wasn't really interested. I, I just wanted to play like chords in, uh, like picked chords in like strange, like different tunings and things with like quite a lot of notes in the chords. And I don't know, like some like distances. I never wanted to play like really open, uh, I don't know, like straightforward chords. But yeah, I I, I, I was, yeah. I, I, and I still, I still, I was listening to it when I, when I was thinking about what to choose for this. I was listening through like loads of Nick Drake songs. And it's still so good to me. I still think it's amazing. And it is just the, the mood of it is like very specific and very moving. But yeah, I also found out that he died. I was reading about it and he died when he was 26. I'm so much older than him now when I'm 29. I was just like, that's crazy that I'm older than Nick Drake <laughs> was. Because I always look up to Nick. I've like spent so much of my life like Nick Drake's been this like, old like who's been older than me because I like I was thinking of him as like an adult and when I was really into him I was like barely an adult I don't know so it's weird that I'm not older than he was and he was writing these things which are like so like emotionally deep and very yeah just very very unique powerful bits of music but yeah thought it was good to choose something from kind of that phase of your of that sort what you're kind of like you, there's nothing beyond there's just like I mean, it did teach me a lot technically, but also just being completely obsessed with this person's life and connecting with the mood of this kind of like person from like another, who you'd never met, but just like the whole, the whole, the whole thing just like fitted for me. I think I grew up in the countryside as well. And there's a kind of, I don't know, 
like middle class kids growing up in the countryside, like being that melancholic thing that I probably just like related to. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's probably probably it really. How would you have first heard him? Do you recall? I don't know how I would have heard him. Um, I don't know what the first song I heard was either. I was thinking about that as well, and I don't know what it was. I'm I'm pretty sure I downloaded like half of Pink Moon on LimeWire, and I had like probably like four songs or something. I think I had like Place to Be, Pink Moon, and then maybe like, maybe they weren't all of, uh, off Pink Moon actually. I think there was like also Northern Sky and something else and ha- maybe Hazy Jane too. It was quite a weird selection and they weren't, and it wasn't, I didn't have all of the like somber acoustic guitar and voice ones. I had like, yeah, these other ones which had the like weird string arrangements. Um, and I remember like walking through the town that I grew up in, listening to it quite a lot and having quite a lot of things like on my MP3 player at the time that were kind of like it. Um, and, I, and Nick Drake was just like one of the few things because I never had full albums because I always downloaded it offline where I always got like weird selections of songs. So like, I had like fragments of a person's stuff. And I just remember becoming like more and more obsessed with Nick Drake and then learning the songs and then connecting with them a lot more from from actually playing them on guitar and then just like just basically just listening to him more and more specifically but yeah at first it wasn't it was he was one of many people who i was like oh this is pretty good like it didn't instantly do it for me but it became and yeah it became the whole thing and then like me and my friend went to his his like grave and stuff and it was all like a bit it's kind of like we've got a bit much (laughs) maybe are there like photos are there photos of a teenage jasper you know at nick nick drake's grave uh you know leaving tributes or anything like that yeah (laughs) (laughs) that was probably when i was like 20. no i remember i remember being i was i think by the time we actually went to the grave i was like a bit over it because i wasn't like i wasn't like i mean because i know they had a load of problems at the grave because people were like chipping bits of stone off the grave and stuff like off the headstone um and i wasn't and i remember going and being like that's not like, like I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I'm not like that into it. You know, you mentioned, um, the idea of, of his age in relation to your own. Um, and this is actually something I've thought about before is that, you know, if this is going to maybe sound dumb, but if he hadn't died, he would still be alive possibly. Uh, you know, he would be, I think maybe in his seventies, he wasn't, yeah. you know, he, he wasn't that old when he died. Um, and it's just, uh, he's one of a handful of artists. I sort of wonder, you know, what else would he have done? He kind of made the, those three, you know, arguably perfect albums and then, you know, uh, left. And, uh, and the music, the music after Pink Moon, the like two or three songs that came out after were like, so good because they were they basically were just it it became like more it just became like darker and weirder and like it basically just went further down the route that pink moon went and became more minimal and like raw and like yeah I, i think it went it was going to like a really interesting spot so that i don't know i mean that would have probably continued for a bit i don't know i don't know how I can't imagine how it would be, how he would like sustain that, or where it would, where it would end up being. Yeah, I can't imagine him as like an old man. It'd be very odd. 
The second song O'Malley chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Graysades by Jessica Pratt. second song I picked was um, Grey Seeds, I think is how you say it, by Jessica Pratt. Um, I realise now it's not a million miles away from the mood of a Nick Drake song, <laughs> kind of. Um, obviously it's her own thing, but there's there's some kind of vein running through it maybe with the I don't know, like very nice sounding um, tunings and tone of guitar and interesting chords and whatnot. Um, although I never have thought of those two people as similar before, their music rather. Um, I don't know. I, I always think of Jessica Pratt as a formative artist for me because it's, to me it's like, her her songs are the kind of like gold standard of like person with a guitar so like solo person with a guitar playing chords or or finger picking chords and singing essentially which is like you know a formula that millions of people do and have done but there's something about her songs that just like so like masterfully put together and the chord structure and sequences with the melodies are just so perfectly satisfying and um, very beautiful and emotional in the way they're put together. Um, I don't know. Every time I listen to it, I just think it's it's really perfect music for what it is. and. Um, I don't know. I th I guess uh, I guess I probably have learned a lot from her about um arrangements in terms of not in terms of layers of things, but just in terms of like um the way a song moves um harmonically and melodically, and I don't know. I just think she's you know of all the people I've heard doing voicing guitar stuff that's like the best thing i've heard <laughs> which is i don't know it's difficult because it's it's a it can be a limited combination of of two things sometimes well you know you're you're noting a similarity that you're maybe just now seeing between two of your influences when you and i know that that some of you have been playing together for a long time uh even before the current group came together but when you're bringing that many people together to sort of create something i mean how do you how do you measure out and sort of uh 
mediate all those different things that everyone brings? Maybe that's a goofy question, but I am curious when the group gets that large and you have that many people bringing their their creativity to it, um, how do you how do you blend all that? Um, it's a good question, especially in relation to the last two songs, because it's like the kind of well. I was going to say it's like the the opposite sonically, but it's kind of not as well. I don't know. It's it doesn't even though there's there's only a few like layers of things. It's still I don't know. I I don't feel like it. Those all those like those two things and our song necessarily feel miles apart. Um, I guess with I guess seeing as we do have lots of people playing in our band and lots of instruments. Um, we do kind of, uh, we do hold off a lot, I think, on, on, on playing, um, generally, like there's not necessarily always going to be everyone playing at the same time. And often there isn't, or often it's like two groups of people within the group are playing different things. Um, at different times and they're not necessarily playing um in a synchronized way um yeah it really depends on the on the song but um it it, it um it is easy to to overclutter stuff so it's it's much more satisfying to to hold back <laughs> for like key moments you know I, I, it's funny it's hadn't occurred to me until now i think part of what appeals to me about the band is almost like the not so much even the musical cohesion which is there but like the emotional cohesion it's like when you have a lot of people who seem to be feeling the same thing or expressing the same thing right um you know as opposed to you know you are the singer or you are the singer and you're up there expressing your feelings and everyone along you you know is just kind of comping behind you as opposed to having a, like a, you know, at Rhizome where, you know, um, I saw you recently, a whole room full of people sort of expressing and feeling the same thing, then that can be pretty powerful when it works. Absolutely. I mean, luckily, luckily it, it does, it does usually work like that with, with our, um, live performances, um, because of the, I think just because of the way we, um, position ourselves um in in the room that we're playing and then the music also lends itself to that because there's lots of like ag like agreeing happening between us constantly about when to play and, and how to play and um yeah that that show in dc was really nice because it's a tiny little room in in regards to a like a band playing it's tiny and everyone in the room is so implicated into the show. Um, so yeah, that that if that if that kind of togetherness isn't there, then it it does feel like a slightly more arduous thing to 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 get through the entire um, performance because it's like mildly disappointing <laughs> when that doesn't happen because it nearly always does. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a really essential part of of when we play, I think. <laughs> 
The second piece of music Llewellyn shows is essential to his formation as an artist was The Disintegration Loops by William Bezinski. I was a bit hesitant to choose this because I was like, oh god, disintegration loops. I more mean number one, I mean 1.1, the classic one. Um, it's just obviously just such an, it's such an outrageous bit of music and so like, I don't know, it's so like, it's been so like kind of fanned already and like kind of, uh, and kind of mythologized so much. Um, but I have, yeah, it was, it was a massive, it was, it was, it was a big thing for me. I remember I'd heard it for the first time in Manchester when we were living there and my friend had been listening to it a bit and I kind of liked it, but I'd not really understood like what it was. I liked that the, I'd liked what it was sonically in terms of, I'd heard like a fragment of it and I was like, that's oh, quite a nice like, loop. And then... When I kind of like, when I like found out like what was actually going on on a kind of physical level, um, I I was really interested in it. I think like I think for a long time I wasn't really like ready for that as as like a concept really or as a way of thinking about music, but it made more sense to me as time went on. And I think I was making quite a lot of like performances on like performance art and nothing to do with music really at the time, and. I was kind of, I was interested in like things changing slowly over time. And I was like, I was interested in, in like duration of long performances. And, and I think I was also interested in things that happen that you don't have any control over. And then kind of like with your art kind of facilitating or like framing stuff that's already going to happen anyway, or kind of basically not, yeah, not, not imposing upon kind of natural phenomena and like, uh, just other other processes that are happening around you or that you kind of encounter just kind of framing them for, for as part of the work and just letting them do their thing and I guess I saw disintegration loops as kind of being like that and yeah I got really obsessed with it and used to play it all the time like it was when I was studying at uh, Goldsmiths and I'd like rent out this there's a room there in the like theatre performance department which is like a it's an old church and it's completely empty and I used to rent it out and um, play the disintegration loops really loudly in it 
kind of as like a little like thing for and, and then like have the doors open it was in winter i remember it was always dark it was always in there in the in the evening or like late in the afternoon and i'd have like the double doors open out onto this little kind of back alley and always would play it and then i ended up making a performance with it and like with a friend of mine we'd like we just have it on like really loud all the time. They'd be like improvised with like movement over the top and things. I remember one time I was playing it in the winter and like it was being played out the d- double doors really loud. And it was on the day that Mark Fisher died, who's the cultural theorist. And he was a Goldsmiths lecturer. And it was just after I joined Goldsmiths. And I didn't really know who he was at that point, but it was like this massive deal in Goldsmiths because he's obviously very famous, but also like, very well loved by people and like it would hit the student and staff communities really hard I think and this guy walked past and he just like came in and he was a design technician I think but he was and, and this other guy as well they basically these two guys who are separate came in and were like what's that playing or something and then I told them and then one of them was a really good friend of Art Fisher and was really upset and so we were all like standing in like this like chapel together, like with the integration that he's playing really loudly, like talking about, and he was talking about Mark Fisher dying and how sad he was. And he was just in a bit, he was in a mess, he was in a mess. And it was, um, I don't know, it was just really surreal. And I mean, it, was, it was nice. It was, it wasn't like it was, it felt like a very like nice kind of like event between the three of us, but it was just strange. But yeah, and I don't. I I do sometimes listen to it now, but I think just like that thing of like process based sounds that rely on, which are basically more than the sounds, and I think that that's like something that we have. Not we never. I mean, we don't really ever talk about this integration loops, but I think that things like it. It was like an introduction to process based music, I guess. And in, in Caroline, that we do quite a lot of that now, um, and we have done for a long time of kind of the sounds being kind of only one part of it, actually how the sounds are made or like the way in which they're played is kind of, is as much part of what they are as the actual kind of sonic quality of them as a kind of like free set of frequencies. Um, like in the song Skydiving Onto the Library Roof, it's kind of our agreeing to play together and the kind of like choreography of that live is as part as much part of the sound as the notes, the two notes that repeat. I think. So I guess like, the disintegration loops was kind of a, it's kind of a precursor to that for me in terms of thinking about, pro yeah process, and like ch- and, and and slow changes, I suppose. And I just think also there's something extremely poetic about something, disin like physically disintegrating, but still trying to repeat something that's like, the kind of like. That, that that is just fundamentally interesting like a machine trying to repeat a task while it's basically falling apart so it's unable to but it kind of belligerently tries to do the same thing every time and it's kind of like the same with Caroline I mean we often try and do the same thing every time and it's not the same every time because that's just part of repetition so it kind of does that very clearly the piece
You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guests' essential songs. The final piece of music O'Malley chose as being crucial to him was Tom Sawyer by Rush. final pick is uh, Tom Sawyer by Rush um, I, yeah I, I, this is a it's a it's, it feels like a, it's a complicated one I mean I wasn't sure whether to include this or or uh, this artist or, or another artist but it felt kind of honest to include this as part of a list of things that have kind of shaped me musically i mean um i uh, nothing i uh nothing i i want to say is like a slight on this band at all but like they're a controversial band like they they divide opinion a lot you know um because some people don't like music that has really long kind of structural changes and and like <laughs> lyrics about mythological things or whatever um and i don't know exactly basically when i was a teenager i was obsessed with rush um and they must have shaped me musically a lot although is they're not a band I think of when I'm when I'm writing music now, like consciously, but so much of my guitar playing was through learning their songs and I think I think um I don't know, lyrically I never really um it it, it, it takes me I have to listen to a song a hundred times before I start listening to to the lyrical content of a song. Really, I never, I never think about that too much. Um, so it was, I was kind of indifferent towards like any of the words and stuff. I, I, I still don't really know about um, that um, with with that band. I can't really remember, but I just like liked the instrumentals. I liked the, I think I liked the concept of like progressive rock in terms of this like ever changing constantly like morphing thing um that you could just like really immerse yourself in i don't know it taught me a lot musically and uh i don't know if this is true or not but to me it does kind of make sense that i got so deep into that as a teenager and then kind of 
eventually did the extreme opposite of that in terms of the things I like to write or my musical interests. I feel like I kind of had to go that deep into something that is su supposed to be as complex as that to make something that is, you know, not necessarily more or less complex, but like musically and structurally, it's like the opposite in terms of like things being more minimal. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think, I think they have some really good records and I haven't listened to them in a very, very, very long time, but definitely I used to listen to them a, a lot. So, uh, it must, it must, it must mean something. <laughs> um, did you, have you ever gone to see them live? That was the first, uh, live show I ever saw was Rush. Um, it was at Wembley Arena. My dad took me, but my dad is not a fan <laughs> at all. <laughs> but uh, he, you know, very kindly went with me because I was, I was probably like 14. Um, and um, I grew up like an hour and a half outside London. It's probably like a little young for me to travel up on the train on my own. So, yeah, he went with me and um, I don't think he enjoyed it but i think as in the concert itself but yeah it was it was great i mean it was yeah the first show i saw and i was super into it uh, uh rush was also well yeah yeah it, it was the first big rock concert that i went to and in fact that was because wow. i am considerably older than you are that was that was the tour the the moving pictures tour was the first one that i saw so wow yeah, I'm. I it's probably my favorite record of theirs as well. It's kind of it's kind of the it's got the most pop songs on it, hasn't it? But they're like that's a good thing, I think. Um, do you remember how the show was? Was it did, was it good? Um, well, I mean, I didn't have much to compare it to at that point, but um, yeah, sure. I remember it being amazing. Yes, <laughs> so yeah, cool. Although I went back and listened to that record uh, a little, uh, you know, like a year or two ago, just because I was like, I haven't heard that in ages. And side two, not stocked with the hits, I gotta say. So true. It's a little more long form stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, does, well, I mean, does this? I mean, you said it doesn't really have much impact on your 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 current work in any visible way or any audible way, any any. No, noticeable way but you know is this does this never comes up you never you know you never um, um uh you never you know uh whip out a black sabbath uh cover at uh, caroline rehearsals or anything like that it's we we actually i think we have actually played um paranoid before um because that's just like a big riff it's fun to play and you can everyone can kind of just like start joining in <laughs> um yeah we probably have we, we we actually do a lot of like kind of like silly covers when we're because i don't know it can be a bit of a task like playing our songs and like we have a studio that doesn't have air conditioning or anything it can get like you can get agitated quite quickly so you need to break it up with a you know playing like black sabbath or something or like I don't know. We there's there's loads of things that we will start, or someone will just start playing something, and then it's clearly like supposed to sound like 
a song from a certain band or something and then everyone just starts playing. It's, I don't know, it's a fun way to break things up. And I don't know if this will make it in the show or not, but you know, you, you, have, to, you have to own up. No one was born cool, right? You know, um, I, I, maybe Jim O'Rourke, you know, was born listening to, um, you know, Zanakis or whatever, but um, the rest of us listen to Rush or whatever. Um, so I endorse this. The final piece of music Llewellyn chose as being crucial to him was Warm in the Car by Stillhouse Plants. Okay, um, so yeah, this song is, I think, I, it, it's, it's, it's Warm in the Car, right? Still has plants, Warm in the Car. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is much more recent than I think Rush or any of the other ones we've talked about. But um, yeah, probably first heard this, I, heard, I actually know when I first heard it, it was in like, January, no, early February 2019, and I was in Norway on a residency, and I don't know how I came across it, I can't remember, but I was listening to this first EP by Stillhouse Plant, um, who are a London-based band, if anyone doesn't know them, and yeah, I was listening to it on Bandcamp, um, and this is the first song on that EP, and it's actually quite different to, to their other stuff in many ways. It's like more repetitive. Um, so in a way it doesn't, it's not like the best example of them. I mean, it is, it's an amazing song, but, and it's probably my favorite song by them. But actually the reasons why I chose them as a band are maybe because of other aspects of how they play. Um, I think some of it's still present in this song. Um, it's basically like, I think I got like very excited by the fact that they they bring together kind of like things which are falling apart completely with like very like very like tightly written vocals um and like bringing together these and also just like the three of them if you see them play live the three of them they're like completely enmeshed as a one as one unit um in this way that is 
yeah just really incredible i mean i think with three people you can basically be like one you can be like one entity i mean i think with caroline we try we kind of try and get to that as well but with that many people it's kind of it's harder i mean i think we do play we try and play we we explore that same thing of like all our parts being contingent on everyone else's parts and like really trying to like lean into the precariousness of that but they they push it further i mean i think it's like it 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 has like that there are like there are stru- there are existing structures though and like pre-written songs to an extent but just the actual parts themselves are extremely mutually interdependent on one, one another um but yeah like just just the vocals are the vocals and the energy but the vocals is, are just so beautiful the writing and yeah i just remember listening to it and just being like i'd never heard anything like this before and i'd never heard drums like this before in this context i mean i think that like they use just bits of free improvised i mean it's not really free improv drums it's 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 like it's like often just like br- kind of broken beats um like little breaks which then kind of collapse and happen again and like the i can't um, i can't remember his name david maybe um mike and casper met them before but um yeah his drums just very inspiring as well it's just all so good and they like are just yeah they're just great but yeah i found, i think it i think it was has was very inspiring for me definitely listening to that back, back then you know i have a similar i um was happy to see them pop up in your list because i have one of their records and and really enjoy it and it's difficult to find much by them over here um but I have a fascination with bands like them, groups like them, and similar groups like maybe I don't know, um, um, probably not that similar actually, like Storm and Stress or U.S. Maple, where the, 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 either the music is partially sort of improvised or accidental or supposed to sound that way. It's written and but it's sort of written in a way that it's uh, composed in a way that it's is maybe not going to sound that way. But if you see the band again, it will it will come out that way again uh, where things are have that element of uh, of uh, chance or, or it feels like chance and I'm, I'm curious about that within Caroline in terms of how you know um, in terms of impro- improvisation and composition and how those two things um, work because I imagine that there's a lot that goes on when you're um, putting the music together and then once you get out to the live space I imagine maybe there's some involved in keeping it alive I think like I don't think we really try and consciously do like things differently for live shows like all that much I mean sometimes we do but like I think that like even when we practice the songs in practice room we still they kind of they, the same they, it works the same way in, in which like there's a kind of predetermined form and a predetermined like style of, or like a predetermined like language of improvisation at different moments. And we follow, we kind of remain within that language, but we say different words, if you know what I mean, if that's a useful kind of analogy, but that, and that kind of remains when we play live shows we kind of we decide on what sort of thing should happen like being like like saying like that sort of thing 
is like quite is normally what the sort of thing we end up saying. <laughs> As in being like, yeah, that sort of thing, like this sort of thing, kind of it's like it's a kind of way of grouping, and the same with like um, like things like atmosphere and vi- and vibe, like these other words that we use quite a lot when we're talking about writing music, because it's like they describe their ways of describing a load of a load of they're kind of umbrellas for a load of other things which don't have to all be the same which can be quite kind of varied but they kind of they kind of like they they place like some parameter but not like a really tight parameter so it's like an atmosphere can be quite kind of there can be quite a lot of variation with an atmosphere but you still know that like you still know what its kind of fundamental quality is like whether it's like good like bad or like negative or like energetic or like it still has like a fundamental quality in essence but actually how that essence is achieved can happen in a lot of different ways and that and then so we use improvisation a lot for that in way that improvisation is the thing that creates it that creates that essence but actually the essence will already be decided but may have been decided the essence may have been decided through us improvising in the writing process and like and talk but mostly talk like improvising and talking we decide what the essence like what the core concept of each stage is and then how we achieve it varies each time and like maybe we and we obviously play different notes and we play at different times we play at different rhythms with and play off different people more than other people but i think yeah maybe, maybe like i mean we talked to the house once about this before and they said that they didn't improvise and i was like that's interesting because obviously i don't i would say they improvise more than we do and I say that we improvise. I just think that we don't fundamentally improvise. I don't think we improvise the fundamentals. Like the st- I don't think we do structural improvisation that much, except when we choose to. And when we choose to, it's quite different. It's a very different show. Like if we ever choose to do that, like. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.